But I think more and more people, perhaps many, many more than we know, are coming to terms with the fact that this has been a structural problem in higher ed since the 1970s. So it's time to take a clear-eyed look at alternatives. That's Scott St. Louis, program manager of the Common Ground Initiative at the Howenstein Center. Today we hear from Scott not so much about the Common Ground Initiative itself or about the Howenstein Center. Instead, we hear from Scott about his decision, at least right now it's his decision, not to work exclusively down the traditional career path of a tenure-track professor in the humanities, more specifically, in Scott's case, not down the path of a professor of history. It's a significant decision to Scott because for a long time, that's precisely what he wanted to do, earn a tenure-track professorship in conventional fashion. But the academic job market for folks in the humanities, in history, or otherwise, isn't right now, well, it's, it's hardly even a market. There are so few jobs. And the jobs that do exist are generally adjunct professorships, which are contingent, which offer very little pay and pretty much no benefits. There are so many terrific PhDs on the market who are forced to take these jobs. And there are just as many graduate students working right now who are facing the reality that when they try to enter the academic job market, there might be even fewer positions available and fewer prospects for doing any kind of fulfilling work in or around the academy. I wanted to talk with Scott to learn how his plans, his ambitions, have changed. I wanted to ask about the future he imagines for himself and strives for as a devoted historian. If the conventional path down the tenure track isn't necessarily viable, what's next for him? What's next for any student of the humanities like him? Since we're friends, Scott and I begin our conversation by reminiscing about what it was like to be two humanities students who often ran into each other at the library. Scott worked a lot harder than I did. At least that's how I remember it. He worked so hard, was so focused that by the time he, for instance, finished Marcel Proust's Swan's Way, he discovered he couldn't write in any other way than in the style of Proust, or at least an attempt at the style of Proust. We begin our conversation by talking about what he did to tighten up his prose for his professors. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. You know, I uh, I bought those books at the end of my freshman year after um, we had read Marcel Proust for David Icke's class, and I was uh, a very young, impressionable 18-year-old, and Proust uh, completely annihilated my prose. I just, uh, <laughs> I could not write a sentence that didn't last longer than a page, so um, Icke wrote on one of my papers something to the effect of, uh, for the love of God, read some Hemingway over the summer. <laughs> and uh, I suggested, well, why not E.B. White? Why not go right to the elements of style and, uh, you know, read the uh, New Yorker articles and correspondence of the uh, the uh, man who wrote that with one of his Cornell professors, uh, Professor Strunk. And I said, that'll work, too. So I read some E.B. White. Well, I mean, it's 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 interesting, too, because I can't imagine you writing like Proust. I can't imagine you going on for pages and pages about staring at shadows <laughs> on your wall um, uh, and like thinking about eating madeleines. Although I do sense that you had that kind of interiority. But um, but it's but it's hidden behind um, uh, mid Midwestern reserve, which is one thing that I want to talk about. But um, <laughs> but let's actually. I, I'm glad you bring up David Ike because that's one thing I wanted to mention is that um, I I remember the first time I heard your name was from David. So David's a professor of French at uh, Grand Valley, 
And <laughs> he said, Joe, uh, there's this new freshman, Scott St. Louis. You got to go talk to him. You got to go hang out with him. He's top notch. He's top notch. So I said, okay, David, okay, I'll go. I'll go find this guy. And I found you holed up in the, um, the reading room of the Honors College, sort yeah. of burrowing away at some obscure, abstruse historical text. Yeah, reading room guy, as I was known. Were by, you really called the reading room guy? Standers in Niemeyer Hall. Yeah, yeah it's reading yeah. room guy. Um, yeah. yeah, and I just remember thinking, I, I, I went and, and talked with you, um, and I remember thinking even then, this guy is, this guy works incredibly hard and is, is concentrated in a way that struck me as like obsessive, <laughs> but, I, but I admired it. And I, I, I did wonder even then, did you have in your head as a freshman first semester that you wanted to be an academic? Yeah. You know, I think I did for a few reasons. Um, the first probably being that I had uh, an older sister who was about six and a half years older than I am. And she had gone to Grand Valley uh, majored in classics and French and done really, really well. And so she was kind of my first source of exposure to uh, the academic humanities, you might call them, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. And I was just sort of in, um, you know, sort of hooked by the things she would tell me about, you know, the opportunities that would be made available in a university setting. And I thought, well, um, if that's the kind of thing that you can do, I just sort of want to do it for the rest of my life, right? And I was too young at that point to understand that uh, you have to sort of match what you're good at with what the world needs, and I think the world needs more scholars of the humanities, but also with what opportunities exist for you to um, carve out a niche for yourself in the world of ideas, but also in the actual marketplace. Mm -hmm. And um, once I got to college, I realized that many of my interests had sort of evolved into you know, kind of looking at the intellectual infrastructure of university life and, and just public life more broadly and thinking, you know, I, th- I think that there are, you know, a lot of ways that I'd like to contribute to just making this a better environment, um, something that's more equitable, uh, something that's more democratic. And uh, I was lucky because I found a lot of faculty members and librarians and staff here at Grand Valley who were very supportive of the things that I did. And, and that's why I'm still here. Well, so I, I'm... I'm struck by this. We, I think we cut our teeth at Grand Valley and at the Howenstein Center around the same time. We've, we've known each other for a while. And I, I think we did go through a similar process of, of th- totally throwing ourselves into academic life and yeah. fantasizing about like the great <laughs> books we were going to write and all of the important work we were going to do while wearing, you know, like sweater vests. Um, and then we, I mean, I th- we like, like, I think many people right now in the current the current academic economic situation have been have had a slight disillusionment about the possibility of just being a sort of straight laced academic and just and just sure. lowering our heads and doing academic work. I mean, I kind of want to talk about that. Yeah. And also your in- interest, your related interest in the infrastructure of universities and in intellectual life that goes on outside universities or alongside them. And, sure. and you 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 um, help cultivate this kind of world uh, in your work at the Common Ground Initiative and the events you helped host. Mm-hmm. But um, one thing I want to talk about, too, is you mentioned your sister and you mentioned um, growing up uh, while she was at Grand Valley, you were a kid in Midland, Michigan. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what? Midlandia. W- Midlandia. Okay. So the home of Dow, home of home of the yeah. chemical company, and um, um, well, basically, it's just a it's a corporate town in many ways. It's just a town of that corporation. You know, in, in retrospect, and I'm, um, you know, I'm not sure if this is you know my most rigorous understanding of Midland, but in many ways it struck me as kind of an anachronistic place mm. because the economic profile of the town is so heavily dominated by one uh, 
company, one corporation that's kept the place pretty prosperous, even as the region around it has struggled. Um, you know, Midland isn't that far from Bay City or Saginaw or Flint, where the story of uh, industry is just a much different one. Mm. And I suppose that's why I got interested in history in the first place, was realizing, you know, as I entered sort of the late middle school, early high school stage, that you know, this is a small city. It's maybe 41,000 people, but it really punches above its weight in terms of import on the national and the world stage. Um, you know, Dow Chemical was, uh, you know, responsible for, I think, the vast majority of Agent Orange production during the Vietnam War. My dad can remember going to anti-war protests. Um, he can remember protests of that nature occurring at Dow Chemical stockholders meetings. And I thought, you know, I, I really want to study something that helps me to understand this place, uh, this place where I came from, I want to make it more than just another kind of faceless agglomeration of fast food restaurants and budget hotels. <laughs> and um, yeah. and history gave me that opportunity. I, I uh, joined the Historical Society in Midland for my 16th birthday. Uh, my mom, you know, went over there and uh, purchased like a $30 membership for a, a birthday present. And she met the director of the Historical Society there. And he was, you know, enthusiastic about the prospect of a young person wanting to get involved, I think, as much as I did. And gave my mother his cell phone number to give to me. And she handed me this index card with my present and said, you know, the director wants you to call him. Mm. And I can remember sitting in my house when I was 16 and uh, being really, really nervous to call a professional historian. I went, this guy, you know, wow, this is this is impressive. Um, and I just, I sort of um, mustered up the courage and gave him a call, and uh, we're still really, really close friends today. You know, I realized that in some ways he and his work embodied the, uh, the democratic or the civic mission that I think uh, historical scholarship uh, can and does honor in some ways. You know, he, he was a historian who knew how to build community, but who did so in ways that didn't whitewash the past. In many ways, he's still the most skilled historian I've ever met. That's interesting because he isn't or wouldn't be an academic in the traditional sense because he's working outside the academy. Right. Okay. And so he would embody in some ways, I'm imagining, and I've heard you use this phrase before, um, but, but public history, public humanities. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, that's, that's interesting because most of the people I know who study history, I've always imagined, have first become enamored of it, interested in it, pursued it. In an academic context. Sure. But you encountered uh, something outside that, and that's, yeah. that's set set out for you a certain vision for the kind of historical work you want to do. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm wondering, when you were in college and you know doing the work you were doing as um as reading room boy uh, which i always it's, it was it's the, i always thought god i gotta be up there usually it was four in the morning and i was sort of wandering around sleepless but um well i got to know the cleaning staff yeah. pretty well at four in the morning they were so nice um you know i'd be yeah. in there at four thirty-five, and they'd uh you know one of them would come in and say oh honey you're working so hard and i said yeah well that's what i'm here to do and um she said, well, if you need to sleep on that couch over there, just put a sticky note on the coffee table with the time you want to wake up, and I'll wake you up. Oh, my gosh. Really? Um, yeah. So that's oh. how I was able to spend so much time in there was because um, the the facilities folks who would come in there early, early in the morning would help me get an hour or two of sleep. So I would sort of sleep in little increments 
and just work a lot in between that and get involved in extracurricular activities. I mean, I, I think I was kind of obsessive. I think that word that you used was right because I realized that, you know, I might never again get the chance to be in an environment that has actually been engineered, built from the ground up to maximize my prospects for personal growth and professional opportunity in the span of four years. And um, look, I'll be damned if I waste that opportunity. What's the source of that kind of job? Because I just I never hear college described in the way you just described it, which is like mm -hmm. a place that's that's built engineered for your personal and intellectual growth. Of course, that in many ways, in many ways, that must be true. Sure. But it seems to me that you utilize it in a very particular way and a very dutiful way. But I've always wondered, what is the initial source of drive? You know, when you were working and writing and scribbling away, what did you dream about? accomplishing and was that accomplishment an important academic text well you know to be honest with you uh once i got to uh grand valley state i you know i had this interest in the academy and in sort of a traditional tenure track faculty career but the the more sort of mentorships uh i made the more information i was receiving about sort of the uh, structural changes that are affecting labor that are affecting work in higher education um in ways that sort of militate against doing the things that I want to do and, and that militate against the several pillars that I have in mind for a, a career that, you know, kind of takes care of my needs on a couple of different planes, right? I want work that's autonomous and stable, sure, but I also want work that's decently remunerative um, that, you know, uh, affords me some degree of leadership or esteem and, um, so I didn't really find out what my kind of purpose was, why I was doing the different things I was doing. I, I didn't really have the framework I needed to yoke together the threads of all these different projects until the summer of my sophomore year going into my junior year when I did a program called Student Summer Scholars. It was an undergraduate research and professional development program. And I can remember sitting there thinking, okay, why is it that I'm fascinated by Diderot's encyclopedia and public history and open access scholarly publishing and public service, all of these different things that don't really seem to fit very well together on the face of things. And I, uh, I was reading something by, I think, Robert Darton, and he used the phrase democratizing access to knowledge. And I looked him up. I learned more about him as a historian. And I realized, you know what? Here's somebody who studied the French Enlightenment. He was a cultural historian for his entire career. And then... Um, moved into the library world and saw open access and open education movements as in some way an extension of the enlightenment project and that resonated with me so deeply that i realized that's what i want to do mm -hmm. and that's when i realized i don't really care about the title i don't really care about what the job is i care about am i living up to this mission in some way because I realized that the only reason I had had access to all of these opportunities, the only reason I became reading room guy my freshman year, was because there were people in you know my hometown and at Grand Valley State University who were, even if they weren't aware of it, really, really committed to that central mission. And you know I think about this a lot because I think at Grand Valley State, it's hard to meet anyone, any student, who became interested in studying history by picking up the first monograph they saw by Cambridge University Press and reading it all the way through. I'm sure there are people like that out there. But to be honest with you, I started to think about history as a career when my mother's mother was 
diagnosed with dementia, uh, became pretty clear that she wasn't going to be able to live on her own anymore. And uh, we started, you know, sort of preparing her house to be sold after she died. And I can remember going over with my parents to um, clean the house, go into the basement where she had kind of hoarded things. Um, she was, you know, born in the early 30s and I think was, you know, a member of that generation that, you know, as is, as is widely said, you know, lived through the Depression and therefore never threw anything away. I'm not sure if that's true for an entire generation. I, I hesitate with those kinds of uh, generalities, but it was certainly true of her. And that's where I found uh, this collection of history books that my grandfather, my mom's dad, had sort of collected in retirement. He was kind of an, arm an armchair hobby historian, if that makes sense. He had these runs of American Heritage magazine. He had books by you know David McCullough. Uh, the first book I have on this shelf of Robert Caro, The Path to Power, that's actually his book. And so I started reading stuff like that, and that's when I got hooked. That's when I decided to get a membership at the Historical Society, or I think when my mom had the idea to, to you know, buy it as a birthday present. I realized once I got to college, and I felt kind of lost, I think, as many people do, at least at some point, you know, I, I have to go back to my roots. Why did I get interested in this in the first place? And it was always because I felt that there is an intimate relationship between sharing knowledge and sustaining democracy. That mission, I think, has evolved in some ways. I've become more receptive to the use of technology to advance those goals. I've become more interested in the relationship of the private sector to these goals, uh, you know, in an ethical sense and also just in a practical one. What opportunities might exist in business for this kind of mentality? Um, and, yeah, it's just kind of been an exercise in you know, finding out more and more of what I can do with this, with this animating mission. And I'm really, really happy and grateful for that because it speaks to, you know, I think a lot of happy accidents in my life that uh, steeled me for all of the forces out there that militate against those kinds of commitments. So I, I joked earlier that we sort of came up together um, at Grand yeah. Valley and that we, we did, I mean, we did some projects together, um, some academic projects, and I always aspired to be as committed to the work as, as, as you were. Uh, it just wasn't, it was, shucks. well, it wasn't in me. Um, but uh, <laughs> I don't think that's true. <laughs> well, but no, but I, I, one thing that I think happened to both of us, mm -hmm. and I know happened to some of our other friends who, who have gone on to do great things yeah. and that I suspect is happening across the country is we, we started to realize that the life we were trying to pursue in the academy perhaps wasn't viable mm -hmm. for probably economic reasons. Sure. The amount of jobs available. Uh, a lot of our professors had to have very honest talks with us and some of our friends, obviously, about the fact that even if we were talented, even if we worked hard, even if we ostensibly did everything right and developed our CVs and were very sort of buttoned up, buttoned down, good yeah. academics and professionals, that the, 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 the job market just wasn't there. Yeah. And that's coupled with or was coupled with what, you know, is being published about in the Chronicle of Higher Education and has been published about for, for a few years, which is the yeah. so-called crisis of the humanities. Mm -hmm. And all, this, this, this concern on the part of some academics, mostly people actually outside the academy, it seems, which is that, especially in the humanities in our fields, in my English, your history, mm -hmm. um, a, a tendency of scholars to hyper-specialize and stop being able to talk 
stopping yeah. to be able to talk with the um the public mm-hmm. i don't know how much of the crisis is i wonder about this a lot i don't know how much of the crisis is real or whether it's always been there and we've always been in crisis and it's just the tendency of academics to to you know think very seriously about um contingency and um yeah and, but but it is certainly true that that most departments are hemorrhaging students mostly to business yeah um or to computer science or to STEM generally. They certainly did in the, in the years following the recession, and I imagine that plenty of departments haven't recovered. Well, okay, so we're, I, I'm just wondering, do you think that there was a process of disillusionment where you realized at some point during your undergraduate time that you had thrown yourself into academic work mm-hmm. in the hopes of becoming an academic, but then you had to realize or at least admit to yourself that perhaps that's not the right way? You know, I don't know if I would call it disillusionment. Um, I would describe it more as just, you know, finding a way to, you know, shed the the emotional weight that you lend to a vision of what you're going to be in 20 years that you realize is um, probably not going to work out. I think and you I just remember. perfectly defined disillusionment, by the way. But that's Well, <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. so. Maybe I just need to come to terms with the word itself. Um, but, you know, it's not... It's not a bitter disillusionment, if that makes Mm, sense, because it's a disillusionment that I think emerged from my awareness of the many possibilities that exist for putting these skills and these commitments to work. And you remarked that we we first came to know each other during my freshman year when I was still uh, the reading room guy, but uh, you'll recall that we we really started to hit it off at like this... um, this GVSU student town hall where, like a, oh, yeah. remember this, uh, yeah. there's really no need to go into details, but a controversial newspaper article had been yeah. written that had, you know, really caught the attention, I think, of a lot of people in the student community. Student Senate convened a town hall on the subject, and you and I got into kind of this debate. We did, yeah. That was um, cut short by a student who just kind of grabbed the microphone. I think it was like a Maoist or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just sort of, of derailed our, our, our nice, polite, conservative, liberal debate. <laughs> yeah. uh, and just sort of derailed it. And yeah, it was sort of interesting. I, you know, I think I was more interested, I don't know that, uh, to be honest with you, and I don't know that I've actually ever told you this, I don't know that I actually disagreed with you in that instance. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to play devil's advocate to get your attention mm-hmm. because I was applying to uh, the Howenstein Center's Cook Leadership Academy, and I knew that uh, at that point that you might stick around. I, I had heard that somewhere. Um, and so that summer was when I was doing the Student Summer Scholars Program, and I think you emailed me or I me- emailed you and we decided to go to lunch and we went to this sushi place that's now closed <laughs> due to because of food poisoning. a litany of health violations. <laughs> yeah. And we just sat and talked about like the historiography of American conservatism. And I went, oh, my gosh, I found another weirdo. You know, <laughs> that's when we organized, you know, the reading group with yeah. Gleaves Whitney and, and Paul Murphy in the history department. And that's when, you know, I realized that. Um, this mission that I've articulated through my work in digital humanities and 18th century studies and public history, that of democratizing access to knowledge, I think Joe represents a really admirable quality that, you know, in some ways I still strive to emulate because I remember in our first conversations, you were just jumping back and forth between literary studies and, and, and film theory and intellectual history and, and politics seamlessly with this incredible oh, fluency that frankly I've never seen before and I thought I've I've got to learn how to do that 
because that's what people respond to. Um, and it's been, uh, it's been an exercise in sort of learning how to do that ever since. Um, and this job has certainly helped. And, you know, I, that's, I think, the thing I like about things like democratizing access to knowledge or the Common Ground Initiative is that they're very capacious concepts, which opens us up to a lot of criticism, to be sure. Um, but because they're so expansive, because they're so ambitious, it allows you to move in a lot of different directions, um, you know, and respond to change sometimes as it occurs in real time, which yeah. has been a defining element of my job. I started the Common Ground Initiative job in August of 2016, <laughs> three months before the election. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if, um, you know, I'd like to say that uh, if, if people didn't really understand the importance of what I'm trying to do, what we're trying to do, before then, I certainly hope they understand now. Well, it's, it's funny you bring up um, generalism or the ability to like move between, which is very, very kind of you to say that. I, I, I think it's just because um, I can't focus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I was capable of jumping into a topic for a while, a particular topic, and throw mm -hmm. myself in it. But the kind of um, furrowed brow sort of uh, <laughs> approach, E.M. Forster described the process of writing a novel as um, working oneself into a kind of determined stupor and I think wow. that yeah and I think that actually it's the work of I think it was forced it's the work of the academic as well I think in some sure. ways like the true academic especially as I realized I couldn't do it and I in that in that intellectual history reading group uh, you were talking about for a while before she went off to um, Cambridge um, another one of us sort of sort of defectors from the not defector but um, perspective academic Abigail's heart is yeah. now in law school yeah and also had, um, I think, probably a similar process to us. And I'm, in, in terms of, of, of her realization that she could do academic work, mm -hmm. I don't want to speak for her, but she could do academic work, but... Certainly. Uh, certainly, but realized that, um, that there were other ways to live an intellectual life and yeah. have an effect on the world, a real d political, perhaps, effect or legal effect or whatever. Mm -hmm. Your your work at the Common Ground Initiative and the events you host yeah. um, or help to host, uh, th their aim is to help inform public discourse. Is that is that about right in your view? Well, I think that we seek out people who are inclined um, both intellectually and we hope dispositionally to pursue the project um, as we've define it. And again, it's open to misconception because of the colloquial use of the term common ground, which people often mean as just sort of hashing out agreements in legislation or in policy. But I think that ours is a little different. You know, when people hear the phrase common ground, as I've said before, I think on this show, you know, what occasionally comes to mind at first is, you know, this thing that's really, really squishy. It's like a, <laughs> I think I said at, at the conservative progressive summit, they, they think of a pipe dream draped in a flag. Um, and that's not what we do. Instead, we realize that at a disruptive political moment, perhaps one of the best things we can do is realize that democracy is made uh, more healthy, uh, more stable, more promising, um, more empowering when people, I think from uh, very different traditions and persuasions, come together and this is the interesting thing about the Common Ground Initiative is that we insist, and I think that you know the past year has proven this, that conservatives and progressives alike are in the process of redefining their traditions in hope of finding political viability for the 21st century. 
And wouldn't it be a very, very good thing if, as they redefined these traditions, they came to the same space? Because what happens when they retreat into their separate echo chambers? The boldest, the most strident voices are usually the ones who are granted the most authority. That's not good. So I think that the Common Ground Initiative is informed by you know, a commitment to sharing substantive intellectual resources, specifically around political thought and intellectual history, with a wide public, getting students especially and faculty members and community members in contact with you know, national thought leaders in these public programs, and you know, I hope getting people to understand that these labels that we tend to apply to ourselves and to each other are contingent. Um, they're diffuse enough that perhaps we shouldn't pay attention to them in order to take our cue on whether we should accept or reject what somebody is saying. When we challenge ourselves, you know, to consider the possibility that we don't have all the answers, a lot of possibilities open up for real education. And that a public university with a commitment to the liberal arts, I think we need something like this. And I think students have responded to it. I'm, I'm struck actually right now by, uh, so you have a couple books here I noticed by Christopher Lash, and you also have a picture of him up here. You have a number of portraits um, uh, in, your, in, your, in your office, but one is a nice picture of Christopher Lash, I think probably on C-SPAN or something around Charlie Rose talking. Uh, you also have Diderot, obviously. Of course. Um, yeah. Um, Abraham, Lincoln's Abraham up Lincoln is up there. Yeah. Robert Darton, <laughs> yeah. the uh, Salon of the Madame salon, Geoffrin yeah. from the French Enlightenment. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I would say, especially with Lash, I mean, one thing that's interesting about him that I think about with respect to your work is that he was capable of, um, I mean, it's a trite phrase to use, seeing both sides, but he was able to incorporate critiques from the left and right to talk about um, public culture. I mean, he yeah. used a Marxist critique of capitalism but also a conservative critique of culture mm -hmm. and incorporated those two in his own somewhat idiosyncratic, but in many ways, I mean, very vital and valuable, certainly thought-provoking critique of American politics and culture. Uh, I'm also interested in Lash and his conception of an audience, sure. a public, mm -hmm. that he would write to. Yeah, And I'm wondering about your conception of the public when you think about the public humanities and public history and the people for whom you would be writing or... Um, for whom you would be trying to disseminate knowledge and, and this perhaps we could talk about open access and this and make make knowledge immediately accessible for free yeah uh, I, w I was talking on the podcast with Sam Anderson and uh, a critic at the New York Times and I accused him of being a generalist or rather I didn't <laughs> accuse him of it he, he just didn't we, we it got us into a conversation about generalism and, and, and specialization mm -hmm. um, and I uh, David Sahat the historian um, yeah uh, yeah um, who's also been on the podcast, just messaged me about it after that because he said he was interested in the conversation. And, and this is um, paraphrasing him. But he said he was interested in the conversation in, in one part because I use the term generalism to mean a number of different things. I was sliding between definitions. So sure. on the one hand, I was talking about someone who, who wasn't a pedant yeah, uh, and who could write about a whole lot of things. Yeah, but then I also, when I talked about generalism, I also meant the ability to write for a wide audience. Mm -hmm. Th those could be related, but aren't necessarily related. Sure. Yeah. And in fact, of course, you could be a specialist, have a deep understanding of one topic, and be able to talk about that topic to a wide audience of non-specialists. Mm -hmm. It does. It does seem like in in either event, if you're going to be a kind of generalist and you're going to try to r write for a wide audience, you're going to have to. 
not just conceive of them as the public. Right. You're going to have to have in your mind somebody. Who are you writing for? What sort of sorts of work do these people do? What, what's their upbringing? You mm-hmm. can't really write for everyone. No. So when you talk about the public humanities and public history, who do you think, if you want to open access, who are you opening access to knowledge for? Yeah. Well, uh, that's a really, really good question. And it's, uh, frankly, everybody who doesn't have access to um institutional subscription through a university library system and even for people who do have access to those kinds of resources but still can't get everything they need so open access is the in its ideal form free immediate online unrestricted access to scholarly research articles with full reuse rights and what that means is that it's not just students and faculty who are doing research who need access to these articles it's People outside of the academy who nevertheless want to participate in intellectual life, these people do exist, believe it or not. Um, it's people in developing countries who need access to healthcare research. It's small business owners who are interested in doing something uh, for which they need access to research to help them understand you know, how to offer a certain product or a service. Um, and you know, I think, again, that's why something like open access interested me because it's interested in, you know, the movement itself, I think, strives to build a very broad coalition around one central principle. I need access to scholarly research and I can't get it. So I want to learn about the system that's in place, which prevents me from getting access to the research I need. And I want to understand how I can sort of move the needle in a more open direction. And you know, I, I think that you've raised a really interesting point that I encountered a couple years ago about the difference between just opening access to scientific research articles and then actually writing in a way that's, um, you know, palatable or approachable for many different kinds of publics. And um, a couple of years ago, I was in I was in Brussels, Belgium at a, a, an open access, open education, open data conference. And I met a science communicator from the large Hadron Collider in Switzerland. So his job was to, you know, help make the... Um, the activity, the output of this, you know, incredible scientific institution of interest to people who weren't scientists. And that's when I realized that, um, or that's when it was reinforced for me that, you know, my project in public history, when I'm writing, you know, exhibit labels for, um, you know, the my senior project on Diderot's encyclopedia, or when I'm writing an article for a popular magazine instead of a journal, uh, that the you know, mentality that the, the conviction that I try to bring to my work of, you know, how is this going to bring more people into the conversation? Open access is amazing because it's all about understanding how policy and culture and, uh, you know, the, the sort of, again, the infrastructure of academic and intellectual life, how that impacts things. But I think it's also important to recognize that it does start to some extent with the individual, with your projects? Um, how are you going to make your research articles open? Um, not just in the sense of making them accessible online, but also perhaps um, what are you doing to share your work at the Hauenstein Center, for instance, with people who aren't academics, but who nevertheless might have an interest in intellectual history if they're just given a chance? And you know, this is a question that I'm living. I'm still finding all of the answers to it, but um, I hope it doesn't sound completely far-fetched that, yeah, I do think these things are related. 
the work that you're describing seems to require um, an ability to sort of jump in and out of the academy. And I know that's an interest of a lot of people who, a lot of, you know, people either doing their MAs or PhDs, but are thinking about, you know, the prospects of getting work after they finish the PhD. Sure. You know, how they can manage to make that kind of jump, both to, to jump out or to jump back in, et cetera. Um, do you think that the work you're describing r right now, if you want to continue to do it, do you think you'll need a PhD? That's a really good question. Um, I'm not entirely sure yet. So the next step for me after the Howenstein Center will be pursuing graduate education at the master's level. I'm looking at professional master's degrees programs in information science, digital curation, things like that. Things which will really help me to round out my technological foundations so that I can understand how best to synthesize those humanistic commitments with um, good opportunities in the marketplace. Um, as for the you know the folks who I think are trying to understand this at the end of their PhD journey, um, I'm 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 taking this these remarks out of context here, but um, you know David Sahat's podcast really is interesting, and he spoke in a recent one about the difference between telic and atelic ends. If you pursued this kind of training for a telic end, I wanted to be say a professor at a research university, and you realize that's not in the cards. Surely there must have been something deeper that motivated you to spend, what, five to eight years of your life pursuing this very advanced, very difficult training? What is the ATEL again that got you interested in history in the first place? And how can you pursue that, even if your job title uh, doesn't have some, you know, buzzword historian or professor in it? You know, I, I think that um, Jason Steinhauer who was at the Library of Congress and now is at the uh, LePage Center for History and the Public Interest at Vill Villanova University, he's the director there, has tried to uh, sort of invent and build this field of history communication, which is uh, really, really interesting and promising because he says, you know, well, if science has science communicators, I think history should have history communicators. And when I was interning in D.C., I took a day off and went to his office at the Library of Congress when he was working there to speak with him. Generous, generously gave me uh, some of his time. And, and he said, look, you know, you can be a historian without having historian written on your business card. You just have to find a way to put those skills to work and then explain to people why your training in the humanities mattered for what you do now. And... You know, I think the world needs more historians in multiple sectors. So I'm not the kind of person who uh, is hostile to the idea of pursuing a Ph.D. But I'm concerned about um, those who might go in with the wool pulled over their eyes, who haven't had access to mentors who have been as genuine and as approachable and as honest as ours have. And um, to those who might find themselves in that situation, I would just say, you know, what is the endless principle that you want to honor? You know, something that will always need to be done. And how can you find a way to do that and make a living that is acceptable on your terms? On your terms, not on the terms offered to you by um, kind of a toxic culture that praises certain kinds of work and ignores others. Um, you know, this is a problem that a lot of adjunct professors face. They are the workhorses of higher education. You know, they teach a lot of important um, you know, introductory kind of survey courses that bring students into those majors. And yet a lot of them don't feel that their work is being respected either in terms of their compensation or just in terms of the, the culture of where they work. And, you know, my heart goes out to them because I think that they're doing very important things. 
Um, and at the same time, you know, I have to look at that and say, you know, I'll take futures I want to avoid for $200, Alex. Um, it's, it's really, really hard because I know a lot of people in that situation and I want to see them flourish and succeed. And intuitively, you'd think the academy is the most natural space for that. But I think more and more people, perhaps many, many more than we know, are coming to terms with the fact that this has been a structural problem in higher ed since the 1970s. So it's time to take a clear-eyed look at alternatives. That was Scott St. Louis. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and I edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual progressive conservative conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies, and it's been uh, quite a year for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.